So among Gen Z, turnout went up by almost 300%. That's a little bit misleading because many of them weren't eligible in 2016. But millennials, their turnout went up by almost 30%. Gen X went up by 15%. Boomers went up by 5%. The silent generation went down by 15%. And then greatest generation went down by almost 60%. Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. A little under the weather here today, so forgive my voice. This episode features two people from Catalyst who lead the preparation of their comprehensive post-election report, Yair Gitza and Jonathan Robinson. Yair is chief scientist and Jonathan lead research scientist. The report is called What Happened 2020. We talked about what it takes to estimate which voters are voting for whom and what the key findings were in the report. It was a good conversation about one of the key documents in progressive voting analysis. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Yair and Jonathan from Catalyst. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. So, Jonathan and Yair, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me a quick biography? Sure, I can, I'm happy to go first. My name is Jonathan Robinson. I am originally from Ohio, but I'm the a first generation uh, immigrant. Uh, my mom was actually born in Poland right after World War II. Her whole family were, were labor activists, journalists. Um, protesters, my sort of long interest in this work and politics is from that background of my family in that way. You know, I went to college here in DC. I was really interested in empirical social science and politics and research. And it was right around the time um, when I graduated, you know, the 2012 uh, presidential election. Um, I had been working throughout the year because I was really hoping to not go to grad school and get a job and see what doing applied research was like. I got a job at Greenberg Quinlan Rosner working on the analytics team there. It was a really amazing experience and sort of solidified that this was something that was really important, interesting, and sort of like got my little intellectual bug going. You know, both my parents are academics. My dad's an economist. My mom's a a lapsed social psychologist who's a Jewish academic librarian. So uh, we're a really intellectual family. You know, I started started doing that work. You know, we collaborated a lot with Catalyst. 
I've known Yair and a few other people from the team, you know, as well as Laura Quinn, who was the the founder and CEO of Catalyst, who you've had on the show. And it was, you know, post-Obama reelect with all the really interesting stories about voter files and micro-targeting and statistical models and high-powered survey research. And I was really interested in expanding my skill set and learning more about that. So I joined the analytics department at Catalyst in 2013 with, you know, Yair and a bunch of others over the years. And and so um, I've been in this world, the like voter file research analysis world for most of my professional career at this point. It's like almost eight years this summer, which um, I think is really uh, probably a little different than a lot of people in politics who sort of, you know, bounce around a little bit, do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I've been for the last eight years, really digging in on this work. And so um, I'm relatively young, all things considered, but, you know, I've had this experience mostly of working um, here at Catalyst in the progressive analytics space. Let me just ask you a couple questions and I'll turn to Yair. You mentioned Greenberg, Quinlan, Rosner. That's a polling firm. What did you learn there that you brought forward, do you think, to to Catalyst? Yes. I mean, I think there are two things. One is sort of like maybe professional and one is more like a research thing or a passion. So number one is that, you know, actually when I was graduated, when I graduated from from undergrad, I um, was really interested in Congress because I had this mentor, Sarah Bender, who studies Congress, like that's her thing, (laughs) and the Federal Reserve. Um, And so because she made me interested in those things, I thought like that was the thing I really wanted to do. And so I was actually initially sort of like a little disappointed that I was in surveys because I'd gotten like a B plus in my public opinion class in college, and I'd gotten A's in all the other classes. Um, But I was really lucky, you know, Anna Greenberg, who's the head principal at, at, at Greenberg, who you've had on the show before as well, I believe, and others, you know, including uh, Masahiko Aida, who was the person who sort of ran the analytics department, and his deputy, David Margolis. These people sort of made me interested in that topic. So whenever I talk to an early person in their career who's always says they have a very hyper-specific interest in a, in a specific area, I always sort of laugh a little bit because I saw that in myself. And what I've come to learn is just that um, if you have great mentors, they can make you interested in things that you previously thought you weren't good at or maybe mundane. And that was anything but the case <laughs> when I worked at Greenberg. Um, and so that was really fantastic. It's, it's, it's really a great place to work. You know, the people are really top notch, super smart. You know, even if they don't stay at the firm, you know, they go on to found other firms and do amazing work all over the space. And so it was a really great first job. On top of that, the analytics group at Greenberg, I wasn't like working on a consulting team who, you know, is putting together PowerPoints and briefings for, you know, Senate campaigns or congressional campaigns or stuff like that. I was working on sort of like an internal R&D group inside of the company that serviced some like larger experimental projects at the time. We did so many cool and interesting things, you know, aggregating large survey data sets. We did a lot of things that went against sort of like the traditional way of doing things. 
And what was really cool to me and what I learned there was that if you do really rigorous and interesting work alongside people who do that day-to-day, it really heightens your focus on doing good work, but also practical work um, and understanding like the limits of very cool things that are highly impractical. Um, and it sort of taught me that finding that balancing uh, between sort of the very practical and the sort of highly designed and finding a good midpoint, which I think has served me well. And so those were sort of two things I learned there that I still, I still carry on in my work today. So if Yair is the chief scientist, does that mean you work for him? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I would, I would disagree with that. <laughs> well, that I think that's a, that actually probably a good sign that he disagreed uh, about him <laughs> as a boss. I mean, I have no idea what your exact relationship is, but what, what is he like to work for or with? You know, when I was starting out, I had like a lot of sort of really, I was really excited and ex- inexperienced and had a lot of like big ideas about how to do things that you run at work with someone who's way more experienced than you from the beginning. You sort of pick up and learn a lot. At the beginning, I think like I learned a lot of things that kind of crushed my pre-existing notions about like how things worked or what you could actually accomplish with what you had in front of you. Are you saying that he crushed your enthusiasm? <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> no, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I have like a whole list of projects from when I started at Catalyst that just like, you know, you look back on them and you're like, wow, this was just, there's no way you could ever do that. Or that's a great idea and interesting, but you know, at the end of the day, like there, no one, there, there wouldn't be a market for that or there isn't a need for it. Well, give me, give me one it. example, one example of something like that. Here's an example. You know, one of the things that I learned at Catalyst when I first started was about like the core products that we provide. Like one of the most important ones is obviously the vote propensity model, which, you know, predicts the likelihood, generally speaking, that someone, a vote registered voter will turn out in an election. And, you know, these models have the most important data elements in them that predict your future likelihood of voting, which is the, your history of past voting, you know, among many other things. And so one critique that you will often hear from people about these models is that um, in contrast to surveys, where a lot of the times they sort of ask people, you know, are you going to vote? You know, these models don't really have a way to incorporate that information at scale. Um, and so you'll often analyze survey data and you'll combine this vote propensity model with a survey respondent's self-reported interest or likelihood of voting. And if you include them both together and you combine them, they are better than either of them alone. Even though this turnout score, combining all that vote history data, is better than the self-reported information alone. Together, they can work well you know, in concert. Generally, that's the case. It, you could say it might be relatively easy to try to convince lots of partners to collect all of this data just for improving the models. That's like an idea I had written in like my interview at Catalyst was that like that was something we should consider doing. But if it's just to make the predictions, you know, a little bit better for research purposes, you know, that's not really like, it's a intellectual, interesting concept. It's not necessarily the most practical. And then on top of that, having come from a polling firm, you know, the survey world is changing so fast that information that you might find 
encoded in relationships between certain kinds of data and data that was collected in 2012, while really interesting, may not really have a lot of bearing to the way you're collecting data in 2021, right? You're really sort of straggling the like practical, what do people need and want and how difficult it is to implement. And then the like brass tacks of like, how do you do research in a changing world? And I'm sure that this was also just like something he had looked at in his his spare time or in passing. And here I am, you know, this, you know, 23 year old coming in saying like, here's how you should do things. One of the interesting things about working with young people is sometimes they see things that you think are impossible, but are doable because they have fresh eyes. And sometimes they're barking up the wrong tree. And sometimes it's the combination of having both around. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. I like that. I, I yeah. want to turn to Yair though. Can you give a little bit your biography and, uh, and how kind of your path to Catalyst? Sure. And I will just second, before I do that, I want to second Jonathan's description of me as a little bit of a wet blanket. Um, I definitely, <laughs> I try, I try to do what you're talking about, Nathaniel. And when there's, you know, when there's, good new ideas. I try to encourage them, but also I think not just for me, but for people who have been around for a long time that have tried a lot of things, there are certain things that you need to have the background knowledge of what's already been tried in order to really try to, to move on from there. But yes, I can definitely be a wet blanket. The, the voice of experience is what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, I've been around for a little bit longer than Jonathan. As you mentioned, uh, I'm the chief scientist at Catalyst, and I've been doing work in this space going on uh, 17 or 18 years at this point. So going a little bit further back, just to get into my like full background, I was originally a computer science person in undergrad, you know, technical stuff, paid attention to politics a little bit, but not in any serious way. And the thing that really politicized me was the Iraq War, 2003, 2004 and onward. So I was a senior in college uh, when we went to war in Iraq. And to me, it was so clearly a bad idea for exactly the reasons that it turned out to be a bad idea. You know, like as someone who just knew nothing about anything, it was pretty clear to me that we would go in and win. And then the question is, what happens next? Um, And it was just very strange to me that things just kept going despite that question. So it was weird to me that me as someone who didn't know anything, it was so clear to me that that was what was going to happen and people went forward with it anyway. Um, So that's what really got me interested in politics. And then in 2004, I was living in Boston. I was still doing computer science stuff. I was doing artificial intelligence research at the time. And the Cary convention was in Boston at the time. So I actually just ended up meeting people that worked for the convention and decided I wanted to go volunteer. I was at MIT for a year long sort of research position. So I was volunteering at the convention and my time uh, at MIT was just kind of coming to an end and I really enjoyed what I was doing and I thought it was really exciting. So transitioned to work there uh, for the remainder of the summer up until the convention. After the convention was done, everybody kind of looks and tries to place people in different parts of the campaign. And uh, I had heard about the DNC's data mart and sort of all of the data stuff that was happening down in DC. And I thought that I would be a good fit just given my technical background and got connected with Laura Quinn, who was the eventual founder of Catalyst. 
um, and came down to DC and worked for her in a little consulting firm for the Kerry campaign. Did a little bit of that, nothing too technical. But then, uh, Nathaniel, you may remember this because I remember meeting you back in those days that after 2004, when we lost, there was the big reckoning of like, what, what are Democrats doing wrong and how much better the Republicans are in terms of all their data and their targeting and their, you know, volunteer management. And so then I was, you know, a young, you know, 20, 21, 22 year old uh, helping out, trying to sort of figure all that out. And I was there for the most recent big round of like the first micro-targeting models that were done on the Tim Kaine campaign in 2005 and the start of the analyst group and the start of like a lot of these firms that are doing a lot of this stuff now. So I was kind of in on the ground floor helping with a lot of that. You know, I remember going and being like, this is a regression, this is a decision tree and kind of, you know, explaining all this different stuff to people. So did that for a couple of years. Um, and then I remember in 2006 when we won afterwards, um, I was just thinking like, what's next for me? And really was deciding whether to just kind of stick with what I was doing or go back to grad school. For me, I guess I, I sort of decided that I was working in statistics and politics and felt like I knew nothing about statistics and nothing about politics, <laughs> except for what I had just kind of taught myself. So then I ended up going back to grad school. I got a PhD in political science, uh, really focusing on statistics. Um, I went to Columbia and worked with a lot of like really good people. Um, Andy Gelman, Bob Erickson, Bob Shapiro, you know, and that whole group of people really focusing on like applied statistics and how that all works in political science. So then since when I was there, I was kind of like one foot in academia, one foot, you know, continuing to do consulting stuff, really focusing on research a lot, but, you know, in, an, in a really applied way. And for a long time, I wasn't sure, like, do I want to go and be an academic? Do I want to, you know, go back and do consulting stuff? Um, and then, you know, for personal reasons, I ended up going back to DC, started working at Catalyst again in 2011. And then just kind of one thing led to another. I mean, in some sense, I guess I'm kind of like the in-house academic at Catalyst for like a long period of time, thinking about some of these like, you know, big problems. So I've been there since then and been helping to head up the analytics team. Jonathan earlier said that I was his, I was his boss. I don't think that that's true. We are collaborators. Um, but I do a lot of the, you know, thinking about statistical methods and thinking about research problems. You know, Jonathan is, you know, my closest collaborator. But I've been doing that. I've worked on, you know, all of the recent presidential campaigns or helped out with them in like one form or another. And so just sort of been around the space doing this stuff for, for a while. Well, I've always thought you have an enviable job. You know, I, I also was a computer science undergrad and then went into a Ph.D. program in political science and did, you know, methodology for a while, but I never finished the PhD and I never went to be a chief scientist anywhere. So, you know, so it's like, well, that guy knows what he's doing. <laughs> well, I think uh, what, I think what you started has turned out to be pretty successful and you've done pretty well for yourself regardless. So some people say, but I get to chit chat with you guys, which is, which is a, a great pleasure and, and an honor. You mentioned being a collaborators and one thing that I definitely wanted to talk to you both about today was a recent collaboration about the 2020 election where Catalyst came out with you two as the, you know, the, the two lead voices, I guess, the, the writers of it, a report about what you think happened. I want to start by asking, why is it difficult to figure out 
what voters did. Why is that something that requires uh, Columbia-trained PhD statisticians and their incredibly young collaborators? Why can't we understand? Why can't we just add up who everybody voted for and know exactly what they did? So the way that I think about it is that for most questions that we care about in politics and in understanding elections, you need to come up with estimates based off of either survey data or some sort of statistics or, you know, some something that uh, you need to estimate. And I think more and more, particularly given some of the recent problems in polling, people are starting to understand that doing that is difficult. So, I mean, you mentioned our report and a lot of what we're doing is trying to put together sort of exit poll style estimates of the composition of the electorate and how different groups voted. So you can go back and kind of think about, you know, the different types of data that people use to try to understand that. Historically, people used the exit poll. That's kind of the main source. There are other competitors that are out there now, like AP VoteCast is another survey that's out there. The current population survey is something that's conducted by uh, the Census Bureau and Bureau of Labor Statistics that they don't look at um, support levels, but they try to look at the composition of the electorate. There are all these different surveys that are out there. Those three things are, at the end of the day, surveys. And generally speaking, in surveys, there are issues, right? There are non-response bias issues. There are representativeness issues. There are all sorts of things that you need to do that create uncertainty um, around the data that's come out. And, you know, we don't have to get into too much detail, but I think that there's been a large body of research from us and from others recently that look at uh, those different types of data that are out there and see certain problems. Many of your listeners will know what Catalyst is, you know, but just for the for some that don't, I mean, we're a big voter voter file company, you know, we collect voter registration databases. So the advantage that we have is that we can look at the near complete list of people who actually voted in the election. So you would think that for us, all we have to do is then kind of like look at it and then be like, at least in terms of composition, you know, we can look at it and then say, this is the percent white, percent black, et cetera. Just to understand, you have a file of everyone who's registered to vote. I assume that you get back after the election an actual accounting for every person who actually isn't just registered, but did cast a ballot. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say like 99%. A voter file doesn't natively have like whether you're Asian or Japanese or something. And if you're wanting to make an estimate, which your report has about Asian voting, then you have to have a technique or a data gathering ability to, to label those people as Asian. How do you do that? How do you apply other attributes, demographic variables, et cetera, to a file that's just uh, a list of voters originally. Yeah, so that's exactly right. And I mean, the, the the ultimate answer is that you have to use statistical models to fill in gaps for places where you don't have demographic data. So to take race as the example, about 20% of voters have self-reported race from the voter file, and you have to use statistical modeling to fill in the gaps. And most of those are going to be in Southern states, um, just by way of uh, the data that's available state by state. 
Because they have registration by race in certain states. That's right. Yeah, exactly. So what we do, and then what other voter file companies do also, is build models, right? There are race models. So we have our race model where what you'll end up doing is you're, you'll look at patterns in the data, uh, both in the voter registration data that we have and in additional survey data to try to predict who's Black, who's white, who's Asian, who's Latino, et cetera. Do you, do you use their names? Yeah. So the, so for the race model, the two most important things are names and geography, right? So names are, there are ethnically homogenous names. And then there are census tracts or census blocks that are also ethnically homogenous. So those are, you know, the two main things that go into the race models. Although we use some other things as well, but those are the two main ones. There is one kind of important point on here that I want to make clear. Most people know that there are race models on a voter file, but there are ways of building those models that are optimized for individual level accuracy. And there are ways of building those models that optimize for aggregate level accuracy. We kind of do both, right? So for the majority of people who use voter files, they're using it for like individual level targeting, individual level marketing. And what you want is then just to say for, you know, Nathaniel Perlman on the voter file, you are white, right? Most likely to be white. And so you kind of choose one race and then people cut lists based off of that. That's the way that most people do things. But it turns out that if you use that to uh, determine what the overall percent white of a state is, you're going to end up with wrong answers. So the example that I give is like, imagine that there are a thousand people on the voter file, each of which is 51% likely to be white because that's going to be the majority group. So there's a thousand people who are 51% likely to be white. And then you're, you're just trying to figure out for each one of them, what is the most likely race? Every single one of those people will end up being labeled white. And then if you try to aggregate it all up, you'll get 100% white when in reality, it should be 51% white. Right. So do you have to then say this person has a 51% chance of being white rather than saying they're white? That's right. So what we do with our race models and with other demographic models that we have is that we really try to use the full probabilistic distribution of these scores. And the way that we build them is really, I mean, that's just one aspect of it, but we really try to focus on gathering geographic level data to try to make sure as best we can that the data is accurate to small geographies. It's not gonna be perfect. Whenever you're doing models like this, you're not gonna get perfect answers, but that's a lot of the specific type of work that we do to try to get at, for example, the racial composition of the electorate in 2020. Do you go back and sort of validate the models you have by checking them against other information? Yeah, so we do all sorts of types of validation. So we do that, right? So that's for kind of like individual level validation, individual by individual. Um, but then what I'm talking about now is also doing the aggregate level validation. And there you have to do other things, right? So for people who want a visual of this, you know, we have uh, in our report, there's a link to a method section that shows this for, we do, we show an example for college educated and not college educated. And so a lot of what we'll end up doing is, okay, so for that, we will have our model and then you can like roll it up to the state level or the county level or the census tract level, and then compare it to census data. And again, you don't expect that it's going to be exactly the same, but you want to see that 
you have reasonable looking estimates at small geographic levels. So that's another thing that we do. We also spend a lot of time looking at some of those other data sources. The current population survey in particular, that's been considered by academics to be the gold standard in a lot of ways. And that also has problems, um, but we spend a lot of time with all the types of estimates that we have as much as we can, kind of trying to triangulate and being like, okay, our numbers say this, the CPS says that, you know, maybe our numbers need to be altered a little bit. Like once you, once you look at all the different data that's out there, just because of all the different uncertainty that we have, um, that, you know, we're, we're sort of constantly trying to get our numbers. And then if we see something that makes us think that our numbers are wrong, we'll actually revise our numbers, you know, not just in the most recent data, but trying to go backwards. I mean, we haven't gotten to this yet, but in our report, we looked not just at 2020 data, but because we have voter files going all the way back to 2008, we kind of go all the way back using our archived voter files. And we don't just like stick with our, you know, 2012 numbers. If we end up being like, oh, hey, you know, it looks like our college education model needs to be tweaked a little bit. We'll kind of go back, you know, and try to make better estimates for 2012 given, you know, improvements in the data and improvements in our methods to try to make things pretty comparable over time. If there's a part of your report that says something like uh, turnout jumped a lot among Asians and Vietnamese people voted more Republican than, you know, people who came from China or something like that, how much confidence should a reader of your report have in those findings given what's underneath it? Sure. So, well, just to be clear, so we did, we and others did see that uh, turnout among AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islanders, we definitely saw that it went up in a, in a big way. We did not see that piece about the, the Vietnamese thing. I don't remember exactly what you said, but we didn't, we didn't break that out. So that may be from something else. That's a very good question. And it's something that we um, think about a lot. The way that I think about it is sort of a hierarchy of uncertainty. Actually, let me even step back even a little bit further than that. A lot of times people will ask us things like, what is the margin of error around your estimates? I am incredibly skeptical of margin of error calculations in surveys, generally speaking, because I know about all of the difficulties in calculating them properly. And um, I think a lot of times margin of errors are much smaller than they should be in real life. And there's a lot of academic literature you know, to back that up. Um, that's true for like top lines in surveys, but when you're getting even more so into like subgroups, people don't realize how big the true margin of error should be. So we don't try to calculate real margins of error in our data because we consider it to be sort of well outside the scope of what is feasible in a limited time and maybe even feasible at all. So like as one example, that I like to give. Um, people often talk about like what is the percent uh, of the electorate that's a white non-college. So a lot of times people will have kind of a margin of error that's just based off of sample size. But if you end up looking across different data sources, so here I'll just give the numbers for 2020 across a lot of the different data sources that are out there. We're six months after the election, all of the voter files are in, you know, surveys are all done. So the estimate of the percent of the electorate nationally that was white, not college, ranges from 35% to as much as 49% in some sources, right? That's just a huge, huge difference. Is that definitional? Some people are some college or is that? No. 
No, it's not. There may be a little bit of ambiguity. So one piece of ambiguity is if you do white versus Latino, there's a little bit of ambiguity there based off of people of Hispanic origin who self-identify as white. So that's a little bit of ambiguity, but that's maybe like one or two points. Most of this is just differences in terms of some of the stuff I was talking about earlier about how representative the sample is, how much people wait on things, and you know these different types of decisions that people that people make. That's just one example of something that obviously the percent of the electorate that's white non-college is a hugely important thing uh, in terms of understanding what happened in the election. That's just one example. What seems important, I guess, is that it's it's complicated and difficult to fully represent what happened in an election. It's very important to get as close as you can. And you guys are working pretty hard to do as well as you can, given all that complexity. Yeah. And I think it's funny, you know, it kind of makes you a little humble that some of these really, they sound really simple questions, right? They like yeah. what percent of the electorate has, has a four-year college degree, right? It kind of humbles you about like all the other really complex things that we also claim to know, but yet these sort of like foundational, you know, questions that are really fundamental are seemingly so fraught. I know I get very frustrated as sort of a consumer of post-election analysis to see an article that highlights one particular change and says that that's, you know, that's why the election went the way that some subgroup moved or something. And then you see another one that takes you in another direction. It's hard to figure out who's got it right. Even some of the, you know, the people that you think know the most about the electorate or public opinion or voting don't seem to even agree well after an election about exactly what happened. Yeah. You're, you're putting me in the strange position of pushing back against the nihilism. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> you guys have put together a report that helps tell as close a story to that as you can right now. After having gone through all these complicated estimates and coming to conclusions, what are the highlights of what you found and how you know, strongly do you feel like you understand more now having done that? Sure. So let me push back against the nihilism very quickly to say that the more you work with this kind of data, I think you're right. The more you see the uncertainty and that a lot of questions are difficult to answer. But I think once you get into it and really spend time with it and compare things across data sources, you can start to see stories that are consistent and stories that you believe. And so what we really tried to do with this report, I mean, we have very, very detailed data, you know, down to like the state and district level. And the lower you go, the more uncertainty you have. But we tried to highlight things in this report that we believe, right, that we think are pretty strong in our data and that we see, you know, at least some evidence of across data sources. So maybe I can, I can start and then, Jonathan, you can add to it. So substantively speaking, the biggest thing that's, that jumped out to me was the historic level of turnout and the implications of that turnout. So I think most listeners would know that uh, turnout was really high this time, 160 million votes uh, and the highest turnout level uh, in an election since 1900, which was before women's suffrage and before the Voting Rights Act. 
you know, the, the turnout numbers were artificially high back then. So in many ways, this was the highest turnout election ever. Some of the implications of that are understood, but some I think have been understated and not fully understood. So to touch uh, a couple of them, and then maybe we can get, get into them in more detail. The big things that we saw is that this was the most diverse electorate ever. We see that, other people see that. So in our numbers, we have it down to, it was, it was 72% white in this election. That's compared to 74% in 2016 and as high as 77% uh, in 2008, uh, with a lot of that drop coming from uh, white non-college voters and a huge increase in turnout among both Latinos and AAPI voters in particular. Some of that is driven by population change, but, but not all of it. So we think that that's very important. Uh, we saw a huge growth uh, in the number of voters from the youngest generations, Gen Z and millennials. Uh, maybe I could get into that in more detail later, but um, people looked at the composition of the electorate by age, and we think that that understates the change in how big the growth was among, among younger voters this time. And then uh, we saw a very large number of new voters this time um, in ways that I think some people understand, but new voters is difficult because some different people have different uh, definitions of it. But just the amount, the number of new voters and the amount of turnover there is from one election to the next, we've seen that type of thing before, but it really stuck out this time and think it has um, pretty big implications for how people think about elections. There's some conventional wisdom, I think, on the progressive side that a high turnout election redounds to our benefit. And there's certainly some academic work that suggests that that's not the case. There's a, a book, The Turnout Myth, for example. What is your sense, Yair, about the electorate's 72% white still? Is like turnout generally a good thing for progressives and Democrats, or it, is it really more about who? Well, both. And it's a complicated story. I guess I would say a number of things. So one is this time we have an estimate for new voters and how they supported Biden. We estimate that they're around 56% support for Biden, nationally speaking. Although again, there's uncertainty around that. But we do know this time that new voters were disproportionately likely to be young, disproportionately likely to be voters of color. And we know that those groups are more likely to be Democratic supporting, generally speaking, and in this election. We do think it was a big deal that a lot of them came out this time. The flip side of the coin is that there is also people who drop out of the electorate who are also disproportionately likely to be you know, young and Democratic supporting, you know, just in terms of turnover. I don't have a mental model of the world where People who are new voters are more likely to be voters in the future, but there is a lot of turnover that happens from election to election. That's one thing. I agree that there is a long literature in political science that looks at this. My reading of the story from the academic literature goes, over time, you look at elections and you would expect that higher turnout elections are very much in Democrats' favor compared to lower turnout elections because of these types of trends, you know, low income voters are less likely to vote and more likely to be democratic, you know, all these different groups. But it just turns out that you don't see that in the data. And there are different reasons for that. So one reason 
that we talk about a little bit in our report is that there's this idea of core voters and marginal voters. So within any demographic group, people who vote or people who like really vote over and over again are more likely to really be partisan, really be ideological, really like know the different arguments, really, you know, be on one side or the other. And then as you bring new voters into the electorate, they may be just more likely to be closer to 50-50 because by definition, they're marginal voters. They don't think as much about politics. So it may not have as much as much of an impact as people think. That's that's kind of one piece of what may be happening. Another piece of what may be happening is that when you see something like new voters coming in at 56% of the electorate, that sounds like a lot, but there is still kind of a very large denominator of people who are in the electorate already. So if you just kind of like go and do the math, so you know, in our numbers, we have it at 70% were existing voters, 71% were existing voters at 51%, and 29% were new voters at 56%. And that only moves things up to about 52%. So that's a big deal. That could be the difference in places like Georgia and Arizona, you know, and all of these like really, really close states. But there's kind of two pieces to it, right? So even if a new voter is at 55%, people kind of mentally tend to think of those people as like, okay, these are democratic groups. But let's just say 55% instead of 56 because it's easier math. So you imagine 20 new voters coming in at 55% support. That's going to be 11 Democratic voters and nine Republican voters. And you're going to get kind of a plus two margin. And so when there are so many existing voters and you're kind of incrementally adding votes that way, it makes a difference. But, you know, it's not like once you have these people, the entire electorate is going to shift to 56. It's just going to be moderated that way. Jonathan, what do you see as important or worth highlighting? Yair has sort of touched on the sort of trends that you see generally around participation. But, you know, there's this whole other challenge that's in some ways even more difficult than estimating the demographic composition of the electorate or looking at turnout trends, which is just like looking at people who vote in one election or another and how they support, you know, different candidates Going back in this case and what we've put out to 2012, you know, we chart the support levels among various different groups in the electorate over time. What we do is a couple of things. One is just giving people a baseline for understanding how different demographic and different uh, cohorts of voters support Democratic candidates. And then we also are able to look at cycle over cycle to see how the coalitions of various different, uh, in this case, you know, Hillary Clinton in 2016, Joe Biden in 2020 change over time. These kinds of questions have their own, you know, difficult methodological questions, right? In this case, you know, we combine survey data, you know, lots of different kinds of survey data, essentially with precinct level election results. It's actually really cool when this project first started, you know, it was sort of inspired in a way by the fact that voter file data had kind of gained favor over, you know, your more traditional NCEC precinct targeting data. And this sort of project sought to bring those two things together because the precinct data is some of the most granular election data about voter preferences that's publicly available. One thing that we do is when we're building out our models, you know, it's way more complicated than this, but, you know, we make sure that in every precinct in every state where we have data, which at the time of releasing this report, 
I believe was nearly half of all states. We'll probably release an update in the future when we have every single state. But we you know, make sure in every precinct that Joe Biden's vote share or Hillary Clinton's or Barack Obama's or various other candidates that we estimate support levels for add up to the right number of votes in each place. And so when we pull all that data together, that's one of the things that differentiates what we put out here versus what the exit polls do or what other academic surveys do is at that level. And when we look at those trends, in particular, I think some of the most interesting and important trends are looking at different racial groups and how supportive they are of Democrats. You know, you have voters of color who continue to be a core Democratic constituency and very supportive of Democrats. But when you look, you know, at the 2016 election and you look at the 2020 election, you know, many groups, you know, whether it's African-American, you know, Black voters, Latino voters, even uh, to some small extent among AAPI voters, you see small declines in their support for Democrats. And that's really important, especially when we can pull all these different data sets together and look at turnout, population change, and these sort of changes in voter preferences across these different cohorts, and we can sort of synthesize them. So, you know, one example when we look at Black voters is that we look at how high turnout interacted with some of these changes and support levels that we saw among Black voters. And sort of when you do the math, you put all these things together, you actually sort of see that despite some of these small declines, you know, Black voters are still really supportive of Democrats. You know, we're talking about 90% or more in 2020 and in past elections. And so even when you have uh, small declines in support compared to the past election, but you see turnout going up by a large amount, you still see these sort of big net vote gains. And in the report, we talk about how in places like Georgia, those two forces interacting with each other are just to a huge extent a boon for Democrats. When we look at all these sort of trends together, we can tell this really neat story and allows us to bring in and that kind of level of rigor to look at other groups like Latino voters, where we saw actually pretty large declines in support from 2016 for Hillary Clinton to Joe Biden in those two elections. And we're able to sort of break down and really understand how all these different trends, population growth, new voters, changes in sentiment among different portions of the electorate over time interact with each other in a way, not just because we take the time to do that, but because we just have all this data at our disposal to be able to look at all those different trends in a way that surveys that are just released on election night don't really speak to, you know, in some ways because, you know, we're all sort of digging into the election results and trying to understand in real time what the story is, something that we have a little bit of a benefit when we wait for the precinct results to come in, wait for all the vote history data to come in. But it's really important when you have this really big picture, and as you mentioned, like, given a lot of data and a good amount of time and working with lots of partners who've helped us to better understand our analysis and hone it, we're able to look at all these different things in interaction. And it's really, really important that people do that. And so that's, you know, in part and parcel why we released this is that once you have the time to look at all these trends and think about them in concert with, with each other, you get to like a really profound understanding. All the uncertainty along with that, right, about how this stuff really works. Um, but it, it's, it's really important when you bring all that stuff together. What is in this report that you think is surprising or really different than maybe 
the initial analyses or the conventional wisdom was about the 2020 election? What's different and new? I alluded to these a little bit earlier when I was talking about young people turnout and when I was talking about the number of new voters. So maybe I'll speak to those two in particular. For the first piece of it, uh, again, thinking about the increase in turnout, I know that there are a lot of people who really work on young people turnout. And when turnout went up to 160 million votes, you would think that there would be this enormous increase in turnout among young people. So the way people normally look at turnout by age is, is just by that, or when they're doing any sort of analysis of election results, it's by age. And you use sort of these similar groups, right? 18 to 29, 30 to 44, et cetera. So in our data, if you look at the composition of the electorate from 16 to 20 and what percent are 18 to 29 year olds, it goes from 15% in 2016 to 16% in 2020. So, you know, that's moving up, but it just, it seems like it's not that big of a change. So what we do instead is that we try to look at things by birth year and by generation. And it's too bad. I really encourage people to look at our report to see this graph, because once you see things by birth year, you just see like a kind of a totally different story. And in general, I would just recommend that people read this report rather than just listen to a podcast about it. Thank you for that plug about the report. And I don't think we've mentioned this, but you can get it at our website, uh, www.catalyst.us. And that's C-A-T-A-L-I-S-T.us. So yeah, I encourage people to go take a look at this. So what ends up happening when you look at it by generation is that you see that the increases in turnout were really focused among the youngest generations. So among Gen Z, turnout went up by almost 300%. That's a little bit misleading because many of them weren't eligible in 2016. But millennials, their turnout went up by almost 30%. Gen X went up by 15%. Boomers went up by 5%. The silent generation went down by 15%. And then greatest generation went down by almost 60%, you know, just because they're, they're getting older and a lot of them are passing away. So some of that is natural. So there are a couple of things that are happening here. So first of all, when you look at it by age, the thing that you're missing is that a lot of people move from one age group to the next, right? So someone who was 28 in 2016 is now going to be 32 this time. So we find, for example, 6% of the electorate are in this group that was 30 to 33. And so they move from one group to the next. So you end up sort of missing that. The other kind of like more general rule is that older generations and older voters are higher turnout to begin with. So in 2020, when you do see a really big increase in turnout, there are going to be sort of ceiling effects in some sense on the turnout increase among older voters. And so a lot of the turnout increase is going to happen from the younger generation. So that's kind of what, what we see. So I feel like in some sense that's understood, but that, that's just 2016 to 2020. But then if you go back even further, you can see that if you're looking at millennials and Gen Z altogether, we have them as about a third of the electorate now, 31%. And if you just go back to 2008, they were only 14% of the electorate back then. And again, some of that is just population changes as people get older, but some of that was accelerated by the, by the huge turnout this time. And that's something that is going to be functionally permanent, right? So if we're at 31% now among millennials and Gen Z, that's only going to grow from here. 
in some sense, I'm cheating because when people talk about young voters, you know, they do often refer to people who are under 30. But at the same time, when people think about young voters now, sometimes they still think of millennials, you know, even though, you know, some of us are almost 40 at this point. So it's sort of these different definitions. But I guess the last thing I would say about the generations piece is that right now there is a pretty large uh, age gradient in terms of uh, democratic vote choice. So for us, we see 18 to 29 year olds at 62% supporting Biden, then 30 to 44 is 58, and then down to 48% and 48% for the older groups. That's a pretty big difference. And I'm not here to suggest that that's permanent, right? That may change in the future. But, you know, to the extent that these younger generations are really democratic, and that difference, I should say, is larger than it has been in, you know, in the past. So to the extent that that remains true, this is a pretty big deal, you know, with implications in the future, some, frankly, which are good for Democrats, but some which may not be as good. So for example, thinking about the midterms, we know that young people are much more likely to drop out uh, of the electorate and not vote in midterms. And so I think that's, that's the type of thing that people should really be thinking about moving forward uh, from our vantage point. The second piece of this is about new voters. I sort of mentioned this again at the beginning. There is turnover from one election to the next. And because we have voter files and we have voter file archives, we can look at how much turnover there is, what percent of the electorate is new voters, by trying to look at the past archives and kind of matching things up. So in this report, one thing that we try to, to talk about is just the extent to which that happens. So like, imagine that you're looking at a typical state and you're comparing that state's electorate from 2016 to 2020. What we find is that about 71% of the state was people who voted in 2016 in that same state. So I would argue that the 29% that's remaining is higher than people think. And we spend a good amount of time kind of breaking that out in the report. So a lot of times people think about first-time voters. So we have it as 14% are first-time voters who just haven't voted in a previous election. That I don't think is that surprising, but the remaining 15% of people are either people who voted in 2018 for the first time, or they voted in some election before that, but just sat out 2016, or they moved from one state to another. Um, and then there's some uncertainty in our matching process. So we can't know the number exactly. But I think just that 29%, if you take that, that all together, is just sort of a pretty surprising number. That's true for the USA as a whole, but then some states are even higher than that, you know, particularly if you look in, in, in the Southwest. So if we're taking this entire number of new voters, we have it as 36% in Arizona and 38% in Nevada. Again, I mean, there are lots of details there as to who those people are and what exactly it means. But, you know, just the fact of the matter that if you're looking at all of the voters in Nevada in 2020, that almost 40% of them are different people than the people who voted in 2016. I mean, that to me is just a sort of a factoid that that type of thing is not very well known. And I know it's something that we're going to spend uh, quite a bit more time looking into. What's the reception of this report in the world? Who uses it and for what? This is not the first year we've done this. This is actually the, the second. You know, we released stuff about the 2018 election, you know, one portion of stuff that came out sort of 
right around a few days after the election, when the votes in California had finally been counted, all these results were updated. And then similarly, again, in May, once we had all the voter file data. And when we started, I think to some extent, we, our goal was to sort of come out with estimates of who supported you know, House Democrats and who voted as quickly as possible. You know, because the the exit polls were were being released and other data sets were being released. And we thought sort of like it was pretty imperative to sort of get in on the ground floor of building the narrative. I have a lot of respect for, you know, people who who do that work. You know, the exit poll consortium, you know, the AP vote cast. People have to go on TV on election night, you know, especially as, you know, people are watching the results come in. That's um, really hard. But initially, we sort of our goal was to be very publicly engaged. Our audience goal, I think, at that point was not just people in our community to make sure we thought they were getting the most accurate information they could get, but also, you know, reporters, people at the New York Times and Politico and NBC and the Wall Street Journal and Vox, you know, all, all these different places that our partners and people read right? As a public good. This time, the election, you know, dragged on for many weeks of court cases and vote counting. And so, you know, a lot of that stuff was delayed. Insurrections. Insurrections. And the Georgia Senate runoff too, you know, actually, you know, wanting to do this work, right? And, you know, we talked and in the meantime, we talked with a lot of people, you know, partners who had read this work before, you know, groups who we'd worked with. And they, I think, helped us really understand that that a lot of people use this report for, as you know, in some ways it sort of goes against our better nature as like some authoritative take. It behooved us to do a couple of things. One is just, you know, we're generalists and there's just a ton of smart people in our space who are so steeped in important knowledge of, you know, their part of our coalition. You know, Democrats are a coalition-based party, right? So, you know, we worked with groups actually who we mentioned in our report at the end, you know, a lot of them gave, you know, comments about analysis. You know, we worked with, you know, as an example, Equis Research and, uh, you know, Matt Barreto, people who study Latino public opinion, right? So that number one, we make sure that when we're talking to people that they know what we're saying, because that was sort of the reaction. And two, just that like, collaborating with tons of other people who are really smart, really engaged, really plugged in in ways that we just have not necessarily, we we don't have the same roles, right? You know, Catalyst services a ton of different groups and they allowed us to probe our and strengthen our analysis. And then secondly, you'll notice this analysis is about like what happened, which is very different from like why things happened <laughs> or, you know, what in particular changed beyond just these numbers, right? Like why did all these young people turn out to vote? These sort of things we've talked about sort of in broad strokes, but we haven't really talked about sort of the specific mechanisms. It's hard to answer the, like what percent of the electorate is white. <laughs> then you can imagine it's even harder to figure out like why did uh, Latinos in South Florida or in, on the, you know, in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, you know, why, why they, their behavior changed, right? That's even more difficult. And there are people who are just much better equipped than us to answer those questions. And so this time, you know, we brought in 
those people. We, you know, heard from a really diverse group of people who, you know, study just tons of different portions of the democratic coalition. It's been a really great collaborative experience. And so our audience is still, you know, the same in a way, you know, we really want to get this out to as many people who are interested in this kind of analysis as possible. And I think people have grown more open to it, but in a big part, you know, after the 2018 elections, we sort of realized that there's this really important collaborative thing that we can do given the time and effort to reach out to groups and work with them. And it's just been really, our analysis has really benefited a lot from collaborating with all these different groups. So there's clearly like a benefit to understanding things better based on this analysis. Is there a utility also to democratic campaigns, to progressive organizations in the analysis, in the data behind it? How does this fit into what they're doing, this particular report? I guess I'd answer it this way. For us, this report is kind of the tip of the spear. And maybe this was implicit in what Jonathan was saying, but I'll say it more explicitly, which is after 2016 in particular, we felt like because people were still relying on a lot of the public data in terms of composition of the electorate and vote choice, that we found to be incorrect in major and important ways, we thought people were just getting the wrong story. One of the reasons why we decided to go public the last couple of times instead of just going through the normal channels is because, you know, we can go and have meetings and go to the different groups and kind of give them our data. But at the end of the day, they're going to look at all the public data. They're going to look at everything that's out there. And we felt that it was important to set the record straight or give our best numbers as a baseline for how people can think about elections. So this is for the national data. We internally are going to have numbers of this sort for every state and every district in the country. Take districts as an example, right? Take congressional districts. Having a solid baseline of understanding of what has happened in congressional districts over the past decade, in terms of just having reliable like exit poll style data, with uncertainty around it, you know, with like, it's not going to be perfect, but just having a baseline of like, okay, this is what's happening in the district. This is how it's changed over time. If we're looking at, you know, Latino support levels, this is the high point. This is the low point. These were the different types of candidates that were there and how they performed. That is us trying to step into the strategic conversation, not in terms of giving it like messaging advice or not in terms of issue opinions. Um, and I second what Jonathan is saying that we definitely want to work, you know, and have been trying to work with people who can answer those questions in a lot more detail and with a lot more expertise than us. But just that piece of it, we think, um, is something that we are uniquely positioned to give a really good baseline of, you know, our view of reality that can allow people to go and start asking those strategic questions. Most people know our stuff for our like micro-targeting scores and you know, being like efficient in terms of reaching out. And we still do a lot of that. But I think this is our attempt to say, okay, what else can we do with this really big data resource that can help jump into this strategic conversation as well? Yeah, when when Jonathan was talking about bringing in collaborators, people who know particular things, and you you mentioned too, like Equis on Latino stuff, or it strikes me as this must be a fun project 
to some degree. You're interested in elections. You're in the middle of analyzing the big one that just happened with really good data in the middle of the progressive ecosystem, talking to people who care about it. How is this project for you, Yair? Is it, is it a grind? Is it exciting? What, what's it feel like? Yeah, I mean, look, a little bit of both. I mean, in some sense, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I've been at Catalyst since 2011. You, you all know this space. People jump around a lot. But I think I would say for me and for Jonathan, John, you can speak for yourself, but I, I know you well. Both of us are motivated by these research questions. And I think at Catalyst, you know, we've been given the rope to really jump in on this and try to uh, expand what we can do. It is fun to collaborate with folks. It's also stressful. We're no, you know, special people here. A lot of the work that is done in, in politics has really high stakes uh, and is very stressful. For this, we want it to be as sure as we could be that we're right on some of the major stuff. And when we're talking about collaborating, part of that is um, just making sure that we can get other people's perspectives and talk about it properly and, you know, see things as 360 as we can. Part of it is just like making sure we're right. Do you feel political pressure? I mean, like there's, it's very charged, the question of did the Trump campaign have success in South Texas? People have their whole ideology and their businesses set around allocation of resources in different ways that depend on the interpretation of this election. Do you feel pressured to shape results to conform to ideas of what of the electorate that are outside of the data? No, I mean, look, we more than anything, we feel pressure just to get it right, you know, and that's very difficult to do. And we don't put our thumb on the scale in any way, shape or form. <laughs> look, I mean, to be frank about it, you know, sometimes people are happy with what we say, and sometimes they're not, you have to be sensitive. So like, for example, if we see something that one of our you know partners or one of our clients it would be you know maybe bad news for them we will be sensitive and try to talk to them first our original goal here for this report was to publish it much earlier part of it was just practical you know we as jonathan was saying we got pulled into campaigns and a lot of stuff that happened i had a kid and went on paternity leave you know but like look Congrats. we saw some things thank you we saw some things that you know, we wanted, A, we wanted to make sure we're right. And like, we weren't just, you know, going to come out with like a huge public report, you know, without taking the appropriate steps ahead of time. But like, we're not, we're definitely not ever going to put our thumb on the scale in terms of trying to get some sort of result because, you know, A, when you do this and you try to do something like that, everything is going to fall apart at the end, right? Something's going to look weird. Someone's going to look at something and be like, that doesn't look right. And B, I mean, kind of what good are we if that's what we do, right? It's like, as we were doing this, I mean, I remember I was telling someone, I was like, here, we want to be the census. That's it, right? Like, we're doing our best. We might be wrong um, in certain cases, and then we'll try to fix it. But that's, that's how we see our role here. We're not trying to be advocates in any sort of way. We're trying to present our best shot at what happened in the election. Is there another project that you would love to be able to do if you had time and resources based on the voter file and, you know, data science and the other various tools at your disposal? Is there something else that you would love to build on top of the catalyst resources? 
There's a long list of things. <laughs> of course. Jonathan, yeah. why don't why don't you go first maybe with one and then I can I can follow with another. Yeah, so I mean, you know, one of the things that in, you know, research I am, you know, most interested in is how, you know, changes in election law and what the rules of elections are affect, you know, how elections are run. From the like sort of truly mundane like you know, if you have same-day registration in your state, how many people take advantage of it and who are those people? And how does that vary across states and regimes and people of different life experience and experience with voting to like really hard, complicated ones? Like how much, you know, in a counterfactual world where these reforms didn't exist, who would vote? And or would that be good for progressives or Democrats or something like that, you know? I think these are really important structural questions where voter file data and data you can associate with it um, is just really, really important. And it's never been more important in a you know post-2020 world um, where you know these kinds of things are under attack and they're really important to study. So um, you know, I've been collaborating with election science disciplines, you know, multidisciplinary researchers who study the administration of elections. And, you know, it's something that has been of broad interest to me for a really long time. That's interesting. How about you, Yair? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to mention two that are broadly related. From my perspective, the future of a lot of this research is uh, marrying administrative data sets with survey and other data both in politics and in other domains. So one project that I was involved in last year, I did it with a collaborator, Mark Seitz, who you may know. I don't know him, but I've I've heard his name for many, many years, yeah. Yeah, so when COVID hit, we actually did a a big project where we tried uh, taking large-scale census data and the unemployment data from the CPS. Uh, And what we did is take these types of tools and these types of methods to try to project unemployment down to the census tract level you know, in down to neighborhoods to try to help uh, people and local governments understand the types of places that were really getting hit very hard by the unemployment crisis. And, you know, that we released fully publicly because it didn't have to do with voter file data. And we thought that it was just for the public good. So that is the type of thing. Um, You know, we're not the only ones, of course. I mean, people may know, for example, Raj Chetty is this big time Harvard economist that does similar type of work, marrying like IRS databases with other things to try to understand different um, aspects of what's going on. So, you know, that general idea of taking these big data sets, doing careful statistical modeling on top of it um, to try to answer big questions, that is the type of thing that we're really interested in doing. And in particular there, you know, understanding the relationship between changes in the labor force and changes in, you know, political uh, views, right? Just understanding more about political economy. I mean, that's one thing, you know, that I really like to do. The other piece that I would say that may, people may be interested in here, uh, of, you know, among your viewers in particular is um, thinking about survey error more. I think everybody knows that um, in both 2016 and 2020, there were notable polling errors. And, you know, that's a longer conversation but it seems pretty clear to me and to uh, a lot of others that I've talked to that a lot of that has to do with non-response bias, you know, surveys not being representative and different ways that you can account for that. 
having this catalyst database, having the resources that we have available to us and the partnerships that we have, um, that's something that we're definitely planning on looking at uh, quite a bit more. You know, I don't think that this is going to be 100% fixed for a bunch of reasons, but um, really trying to, to jump into that in more detail uh, in the near future. Is there a question that I didn't ask about this report that I should have? I have one. We're the authors or co-authors of this report, but, and there are a few other names, you know, who are mentioned in, you know, people who helped out with the layout and edited and wrote and made, you know, amazing, beautiful, interactive data visualizations, which I'm sure Nathaniel, you as, you can appreciate it. I do love that stuff. <laughs> but, you know, when I think about, you know, the resources that sort of collectively go into this, you know, it's not just the people who are at Catalyst now, which there are many people who are currently working on aspects of this project. You know, there are past members of our department, past people who've helped collected, collected voter files, demo history data, and early vote data, and standardized precinct results, which is a really, really difficult, laborious task. We're the ones who are here, you know, talking to you about this project, and, you know, we're the ones who are, you know, probably the most involved. You know, I really just want to like emphasize that this is not just the partners who we talked to, you know, to help us better understand these estimates, but there's just a whole group of people who worked on underlying portions of it, who gave feedback, who provided the data that make it all look so effortless in this spreadsheet of estimates, which really is, you know, from a computational perspective, from a data perspective, from like just a human hours of work perspective, is just a really gargantuan, incredible achievement, in my view. <laughs> and it's all just synthesized into like these tables that seem really so simple. Is the, is the question I should have asked, who else gets credit? Yeah. And the list yeah. is very long. And the list is very long. And and um, they can and people can figure that out by looking at your report. In some ways the names are just so so there's way you know way too many of them. Oh, it's funny because I, I do it justice. I'm friends with uh, Professor Ann Salva here. Uh, he's at Harvard yeah. and I sent him a note and said, what should I ask these guys? And I realized I didn't ask his questions, but, um, and he said, well, they sent it to me to review. <laughs> so I've seen it, you know, and I've had some input. It was just an example of how kind of you guys we take this use, really seriously yeah, and you're using really smart people to help you get closer to where you want to be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. From the putting it all together to when it's almost ready to go. Yeah. You're, what should I have asked that I didn't from your perspective? Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk again at some point, but I like that this is the end because it illustrates just how much nicer of a person Jonathan is than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, he just may have just beat you to the punch there. That's all. <laughs> well, I have eight years of experience to the contrary. So, <laughs> well, you know, it's it's really an honor to talk to you. In fact, I think we should talk again. I think there's too many things that you guys are doing that are interesting to not uh, find another excuse to, and I'd I'd love to do that if you're up for it. All right, we appreciate you having us on. Where do we find this report? You can find it on our website www.catalyst, that's C-A-T-A-L-I-S-T dot U-S. That was Yair Gitza and Jonathan Robinson. Their work is at 
catalyst.us slash wh-national. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.